They'll sell you thousands of greens, Veronese green and emerald green and cadmium green and any sort of green you like, but that particular green, never. Pablo Picasso. Welcome to Color Theory 101, the podcast where we talk about all things color theory. I'm your host, Bianca Manditti. I'm the former chair of 2D Studies and Fiber Arts at the Glick School of Art. I'm an academic color theorist and rendering artist, and I've traveled all over the United States lecturing on color theory. Today's episode, I've titled, Why Yellow and Blue Don't Make Green, also known as, Lies Your Elementary Art School Teacher Told You. We're going to be talking about this idea of primary colors today, where it comes from, why it's so deeply rooted in our consciousness, and why it doesn't always work. To start off with, though, I want to talk about the color of the day. This is a segment where I discuss historic pigments to give you a little bit of background on the different colors that we use. Today's historic pigment is Egyptian blue. Egyptian blue is actually the very first man-made pigment ever created. It was invented right around 700 BCE and remained in use through the Dark Ages. By the time the Dark Ages rolled around, the pigment had all but disappeared, including the formula for how it was made. In the Egyptian language, the name for this particular color actually translates to fake lapis. I'm not going to try to do the original Egyptian pronunciation. I have too much respect for the people to butcher their language like that. But it's interesting to note that The color itself could be anywhere from blue to green, and the Egyptians did not, in fact, have separate categorizations for blue or green. It was all one spectrum to them. They're not unique in this. There are several cultures throughout the world that don't actually have separate categories for blue or green, which I thought was important to note given today's topic about primary colors. The Romans, however, did have a separate categorization for blue and green, and they called this particular pigment cerulean. It's important to note, though, that modern-day cerulean is not, in fact, the same as Egyptian blue. Because Egyptian blue disappeared from the world, what became known as cerulean is a different color altogether. If you're curious to look at what Egyptian blue actually looks like, I have an example from ancient Egyptian pottery that was made around 750 BCE up on the Color Theory blog. Color Theory, C-O-L-O-U-R, Theory 101, wordpress.com so you can go take a look at it. The pigment was created by heating quartz and copper along with sand. This was normally done in a kiln. So it makes sense that it would create a wide range of blue and green colors given that it was created using copper. Since it disappeared altogether, it wasn't really rediscovered until Pompeii was dug up in the 1800s and the formula itself was not recreated until the end of the 19th century. In modern times, Egyptian blue has actually been modified to be turned into a printer ink. It can be made very, very thin, and because of its unique luminescent qualities, it actually fluoresces at the infrared spectrum. It's been used as a security ink for things like contracts and checks. It also has applications in housing. It's been used uh, on roofing tiles to reflect light and heat, and it's also been used in luminescent dusting powders for forensics. So aside from paint, this particular pigment has a good number of modern day uses. So that's a little bit about Egyptian blue. Now for today's main topic. So let's talk about the primary colors. Before we really delve deep into the history of primary colors, we first need to talk a little bit about how color works from a physics perspective. Unfortunately for us, this is really going to be the only time we talk about science in this episode, because the theorists that we're going to focus on weren't really big advocates of using physics. There really has been, since the beginning of of color theory as a study, a real division between 
what is called the artist colors, which are pigments used for paints, ceramics, etc., and what they call natural colors, which would be colors that are created in a lab. So really from the very beginning, there sort of were two sides. There was the side of the artists and then the side of the physicist. And it's been very difficult to bring those two sides together. So let's talk about how color works. When we look at an apple, for example, that is red, the color that we're seeing is actually the light being reflected back to us. So basically, the apple absorbs every spectrum of light except for red. Black, of course, absorbs all colors, and white reflects all colors back equally, which is what gives it its brilliance. It's important to note that for today's discussion, we're going to be focusing on a type of color theory known as subtractive, meaning that we're taking away light. An easier way to think about this is that it's art that's created in the real world, whereas additive color theory, which is color theory that adds light, primarily in modern times, takes place on a computer screen. For me, that's just an easier way to think about them. Although both of these ideas are very, very old and they way predate any kind of idea of digital art, I think it's often easier to think about them in terms of analog versus digital, with subtractive being analog and additive being digital. But really for today, we are going to be focusing on subtractive color theory, which is color theory that moves towards black because we're taking away light. All right, so all of us know that yellow and blue make green. This is one of the earliest art lessons most people learn. And if you're close to my age, which is that you're a Gen Xer, you probably grew up seeing those very famous Ziploc commercials where they showed that you could tell that the bag was closed because the yellow stripe and the blue stripe would combine to make green, right? I grew up seeing the yellow and blue make green commercials. It's very, very popular when I was young. Even my husband, who isn't remotely artistic, has said to me that he remembers learning about the primary colors very, very young, as young as probably kindergarten or first grade. This is considered one of those foundational knowledges that we teach all young children. What are the primary colors? Red, yellow, and blue. But it's rarer that we talk about where this idea comes from. Nobody seems to question that these three are the primary colors. Why are they the primary colors? Where does this idea come from? Why do we simply accept this is true? Which I've often thought was weird, given that so much of color is founded from physics. And in other areas of physics, we wouldn't simply take things as sacrosanct. I mean, there's proof. We talk about the Earth being round or the orbit around the sun. All of these things are provable. But the primary colors, we just sort of are taught at a very young age to be an ultimate truth and not really given a lot of foundation behind where that truth comes from or whether or not it's actually in fact true. So where do these ideas come from? Well, the first person we need to talk about is a man by the name of Leblanc, and he lived from 1667 to 1741. So this is, I think, very important to think about. We didn't have a notion of the primary colors until the middle of the 1600s, which really wasn't that long ago when you think about it in terms of humanity. This is an idea that we sort of take as sacrosanct, and yet it was something that didn't exist in the six, until the 1600s. Leblanc was an engraver, and he became interested in color theory for printmaking. Engraving was an early form of printmaking. It's actually still done today, but in its earliest incarnations, it primarily was done for 
the printing of, for example, invitations or signage, notices, it predated movable type. So engraving was really used first by printmakers before there was a movable type. So Leblanc was interested in using color for printmaking, and he developed a system of printing using blue, red, and yellow. Or as what might sound more familiar to you, cyan, magenta, and yellow, which as anyone who's ever had to change the toner on their home printer, those three colors should sound very familiar because they're the three colors that we use in our at-home color printers alongside black. He wrote a book entitled Colorito or the Harmony in the Color of Painting. And in his book, he defined what he called the primitive colors. Now I wanna take a second here and just point out a little linguistic difference as far as the word primitive is concerned. What he meant by primitive is very different from our modern understanding of the word primitive or even the artistic aesthetic of primitivism. Leblanc actually meant primitive in terms of foundational or the thing from which all others sprung. He did not mean that they were rough, unpolished, uneducated, any of the things that we tend to associate with the word primitive, any of the negative associations that we tend to have with the word primitive, that was not at all what his thinking was. He just believed that these were sort of primordial, I believe would be a better word for it. They were the primordial colors from which all other colors sprung. One of the real difficulties of Leblanc's approach is that it really requires the artist to reduce all the various colors into their fundamental states deconstructing the art into what the artist perceives as its chromatic parts. So an easier way to talk about this is if you were going to try to print a picture of an orange, you would have to look at that orange and then pull apart all the different gradations of color that were in it and all the different amounts of red and yellow and e even how much blue you would have to put in to attain black, because you have to remember Leblanc didn't use black. He only used red, yellow, and blue to try to achieve not only the color of orange, but the right amount of light and shadow. This is very difficult to do, even for modern day printers. I've done some printing and I've even done color printing using a similar process, although Modern day artists add black, just like we have black in the modern day printers, and it's referred to as CMYK printing, meaning cyan, magenta, yellow, and black printing, because it's too difficult to try to attain black from the mixing of red, yellow, and blue, so it's easier to add black in. The fact that achieving any kind of consistent results was so difficult was actually borne out in Leblanc's own work. A lot of his work was more failure than it was success, which is not necessarily a bad thing. As an artist myself, I have had a lot of failures. I understand that artists grow through failures, but I think that the statistical number of failures that he had probably should have been an indication that something was missing or not quite right in his theory. But nevertheless, he persevered. And even though he had a lot of failures, his work obviously is still important to this day. Like I said, printers do use CMYK printing in print shops, and we see them at our at-home printers. The same principles were actually used for Polaroid prints, any kind of heat print photography, like zinc photoprocessing printing. He also eventually, his theories were used in chromolithography, which is another type of color printing. So Leblanc had a very like long-reaching, uh, positive 
influence, clearly. But one of the things that I will say about LeBlanc's principles that I think most of you that have ever seen a Polaroid or have ever printed out a picture on your inkjet printer are aware of is that the colors just aren't quite right. It's a very specific look and very slightly dull and off. Not quite right, I guess, is the best way to put it. And CMYK, which, like I said, includes black, which is not something that LeBlanc did. But CMYK printing is a very particular aesthetic that artists recognize. When one printmaker uses that, another one can look at it and very easily figure out that that's what's happening because it has a slightly dull look. It's almost vintage looking in appearance is the best way I can think to describe it. Aged, slightly off, not completely right. It's not wrong, but it's not completely right. And I'm sure all of you have experienced this when you've tried to print out a picture from your color printer. The problem with this is that the computer and the printer are trying to recreate something based off of supposed chromatic parts and then retro-engineer a finished product. And it just doesn't always work out the way that the computer thinks it's going to work out. And the eye can tell the difference. The eye knows it's not right. And that's why the colors often appear dull and slightly off. The next theorist that we've come to now is a man by the name of Moses Harris. Moses Harris lived from 1730 to 1788. He was an entomologist and a scientific illustrator. So most, if not all of his work dealt with naturally occurring hues. He basically went out into the field, studied bugs, drew pictures of bugs, then brought the pictures back and published them in scientific journals. In 1776, he wrote a book entitled The Natural Systems of Colors. He invented the first color wheel that made use of the primary colors. Now, I say that to be very clear because Newton beat him out as far as the wheel aspect is concerned, but Newton's wheel was different. All of the colors on Newton's wheel were evenly spaced with no colors given more prominence than others. Whereas in Harris's wheel, the primary colors were given strong prominence. And he also really invented the terms uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary colors, which are the primary, of course, are red, yellow, and blue. The secondary are all the colors that you can make from the primary colors, so orange, green, and purple. And then the tertiary are further complex colors such as brown, teal, right, gray. You get the idea. He argued that because red, yellow, and blue could not be reduced to anything else, they had to be the primary source of all color. That's where that term comes from. It's clear that Harris was deeply influenced by LeBlanc, and it's not that surprising given that LeBlanc did lecture quite a bit after he published his theories. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Harris had read his work and had heard of it. LeBlanc's experiments were carried on throughout his entire lifetime. He worked pretty much right up to the end, trying to perfect his three-color printing system. So I don't think it's that strange that Harris would have heard of it. Although, to my recollection, upon reading Harris's book, he doesn't directly credit LeBlanc at any point, but I'm fairly certain he had to have read LeBlanc. So Harris basically created this wheel and in the very, very center of the wheel was black and then outside of black were red, yellow, and blue. And then outside of that were all other colors, which if you're interested in seeing a picture of Harris's color wheel, I have a photograph of it up on my blog. It is an absolutely beautiful work of art. It's one of my favorite historic pieces of color theory art, even though I don't actually agree with Harris's theories. I do love 
the historic picture of one of the first color wheels. It's really quite gorgeous. So here's where we run into problems with Harris's theories, as he detailed. Because he basically said, much like LeBlanc, if you mixed all the primaries together, you would wind up with black. But anyone that's ever tried this will tell you this very rarely actually happens. Most of the time you get gray or brown if you're lucky. It's very difficult to actually achieve black just from mixing the three primaries, which we know because having talked about LeBlanc and having talked about the addition of black to the at-home printers, I think why else would we use black toner if we didn't need it? The other thing is that mixing the secondary colors, orange, green, and purple should be very easy. This is a very simplistic formula that Harris is proposing here. It's definitely a one-in-one-makes-two idea, but anyone that's ever tried to mix a secondary color, for example, green, has run into the problems of not having it turn out the way in which they envisioned. So let me give you an example using three different primary colors. The first of which would be cerulean blue, the second would be lemon yellow, and the third would be cadmium red. If you use these three colors to try to mix the secondaries, you would get lovely greens, but instead of orange, you would wind up with brown, and instead of purple, you would wind up with gray. If you're interested in seeing a photograph of this, I do have a picture of this particular mixing process up on my blog, color theory, C-O-L-O-U-R-101.wordpress.com if you wanna go take a look at it. So clearly Harris's theories don't work, at least not all of the time. I mean, if it was any other realm of scientific inquiry and I were to say to you, well, this achieves results one third of the time, you would say, go back to the drawing board. You're close, but you're not there. So this is not the be all end all that Harris, I think, had hoped it would be. And I think this is really what Picasso was talking about in the quote that I opened with about all the different types of green. The fact that when you go into an art supply store, there are so many different colors of green right, sort of negates Harris's idea that mixing green is simple. Now, granted, as an artist myself, I will say if I know that I'm going to get the color I want without fail by picking up the tube of paint, that I don't have to do anything to it, then yeah, of course, I'm going to buy the paint because human beings are pretty much lazy by nature. <laughs> I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. But the fact that there are 30, 40, 50 different greens that you can buy, well, that's a little more confounding given Harris's one plus one equals two. I mean, how do you get 40 from two? That just doesn't work. And like Picasso said, the green that you want is rarely a green that you can buy. And I think what he's really alluding to is this idea that most artists have felt, which is that when we go to paint something, often we want this sort of elusive color that we can't find in a tube. And so we wind up having to modify and mix and tweak to try to find what we were looking for. If Harris's theories were true, it wouldn't be that complicated. It wouldn't be that hard and it wouldn't be that frustrating. One of the things that I have seen over my years teaching color theory is the sheer amount of both shame and frustration that I see from art students when they come to talk to me about color. I cannot tell you the number of graduate students I have had come to talk to me very quietly outside of color theory classes to say that they're terrible at mixing color. And it's 
shameful for them. And for a long time, I couldn't figure out why people were so ashamed at being bad at mixing color. Because statistically speaking, most people are really bad at mixing color. <laughs> it just seems to be an exercise in frustration for like 90% of the population, at least, if not more. So I couldn't figure out where the shame was coming from. And it wasn't until I had been teaching for several years that it clicked in my head. Well, they're being sold this bill of goods that it's simple, right? Yellow and blue make green. And yet when they can't make green from that equation, they feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with them, that they ought to know why it's not working and how to fix it. When the truth of the matter is, is that they're not actually being given the tools to fix it. So it's really not that shameful. Color theory is not one of those things that comes naturally to the majority of the population. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you unartistic or untalented. It just means that there's a gap in your education. That's all. All right. So what do we do? We have this problem, right, with this theory, and it doesn't work. So how do we fix it? Well, there's a theorist, and his name is Wilcox. He is still alive. And he wrote a book in 1987. So this is almost 200 years after Harris's work was published. So we have almost 200 years of Harris's ideas being taken up into the general consciousness and then um, sold as the ultimate truth, I guess is the best way to say it. So 200 years later, Wilcox writes a book entitled Yellow and Blue Don't Make Green. Now, I will say the very first time I saw this book, my initial reaction was, well, of course they don't. But I was very curious because at the same time, it was clear to me that Wilcox was going against the grain when it comes to the way that color theory is largely taught uh, to the general population and even to artists. So Wilcox had this idea that the problem here is with the idea that primary colors themselves are pure. Remember that both Harris and LeBlanc said that the reason why red, yellow, and blue were the primary or primordial colors, or however you want to refer to them, were because they were pure and couldn't be reduced. Now, to Wilcox's credit, my feeling that I have gotten from reading his books is that he does understand clearly these other theories lived a long time ago, and their understanding is limited to the technology that they had access to. And I also think it bears noting that by the time Wilcox was writing this, general physics education for people was much greater than it was at the time that LeBlanc and Harris was writing. So even if we allow for the division between artist colors and natural colors, like I talked about at the beginning, or colors used in painting and colors examined in a laboratory, you can't really get away from the fact that just common knowledge of physics exists. So Wilcox examined why it is that the primary colors don't actually work. And he also took a look at what he knew of physics. And he came back and said, the problem with this is that there's no such thing as pure primary colors. Now I'm going to say this a second time because it bears repeating. There are no such thing as pure primary colors. And this is one of those statements that whenever I teach this in a classroom, there's always one. <laughs> I always have one student in the lecture hall who becomes incredibly affronted when I say this. It really does go against a lot of what we're taught. And my response always is, then show me. Show me 
the pure primary colors. If there were pure primary colors, wouldn't we have colors named that? Or the red, the blue, the yellow, right? If indeed there were three such pure, perfect colors that Harris and LeBlanc mentioned, then wouldn't it be easy to find them, to point them out? Wouldn't we all know what they were? Wouldn't we all agree upon what they were? It would be universal. We would have no way to deny it. And yet, if you ask one person to tell you what primary blue looks like, and then the two of you each picked out a blue, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to pick out different blues. If you have 40 people in a classroom, you're probably going to come back with at least 32 to 35 different answers for what the blue should look like. And I've tested this out on students. It's hilarious to see how confused they are by the fact that the people on either side of them think of a different blue as primary blue. But that's that just shows that Wilcox is right. There are no universal primary colors. So this idea is also supported by experiences with color mixing. You can actually bear this idea out. So let's return to my earlier example. Cerulean blue, while it is a blue, it is a blue that has green in it. And cadmium red is red, but it has orange in it. If we were to try to make purple from these two colors, we're really actually mixing blue, red, orange, and green, which is why you're going to get gray or sometimes brown, depending upon the levels of colors used, and not purple. So the real problem here is that primary colors all have other colors in them, and we're mixing a bunch of other colors together, and more often than not, what we wind up with is kind of a soupy, ugly mess. <laughs> So Wilcox really took a lot of time and looked at the, the various types of primary colors, and he hit upon this idea that primary colors tend to lean in one direction or the other. In other words, red will either be an orange red, or it'll be a purple red. And blue will either be a purple blue or a green blue, and yellow will either be a green yellow or an orange yellow. So they tend to kind of lean into what other colors are on either side of them. So he proposed a modified color wheel that split the primaries into six instead of three. So you have two yellows, two reds, and two blues. And he called this wheel a color bias wheel. Now, you have to remember Wilcox was writing this in 1987 and color bias meant something different <laughs> then than it does now. But what he really meant was all colors lean in one direction or the other. Some yellows want to be green and some yellows want to be orange and they have a predisposed bias towards those leanings. I get that from an intellectual standpoint, but I do think given the change in language just over the last you know, 20 some years, calling it a color bias wheel probably is more charged than he would have anticipated. I just tend to call it the Wilcox wheel because that's the easiest way to refer to it. If you're curious to see an example of this color wheel, I also have a photograph of it up on my blog, colortheory101.wordpress.com. That's C-O-L-O-U-R theory101.com. Okay, so one of the things that I think is really funny about Wilcox is that he didn't necessarily have to put his colors in a wheel but the fact that he did and the fact that he kind of jumped off of 
Harris's color wheel really gives credence to how ingrained this notion has really become in our culture. Wilcox understood that he couldn't strike out too far afield and still be accepted. And even with him using a modified color wheel, it can give people a lot of consternation. I mean, this is a concept that can be very difficult for students to understand, even though the idea is very simplistic, simply because it's different from what they're used to. But I like Wilcox because his ideas actually work. They bear out. They bear out through testing. And he spends a great deal of time in his books talking about not just color theory itself, but the practicalities of color mixing, which is really wonderful. And that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. But I will say that between the three gentlemen that we have discussed today, Wilcox is the one that has led me to have close to 99% success rate in my color mixing. And my students the same. Everyone that's adopted this theory has done quite well for themselves when it comes to mixing paint. So one of the big questions that I get from students is, how can you tell which way your colors lean? Because that becomes the next problem, right? If you know that there are orange, yellows, and green yellows, how do you tell which one is which? Well, the simplest way is to look on the paint itself because a lot of paint companies have actually taken to marking on the paint or they sometimes will mark on the website for the paint, which way the color leans. And I think this is uh, a nod to Wilcox, even though he's clearly not big enough to be taught everywhere. I think his influence has been known enough that we have started to see this reflected in paints themselves. The other way that you can tell is by going onto an internet database and taking a look. I've put a link for one that I particularly like that's a internet database that takes a look at a bunch of different pigments when they are exposed to UV and IR radiations and basically gives you the breakdown of what's fluorescing back and they actually show what the colors look like under the different light exposures, which is really helpful. So you can see if there is red in the blue or green in the blue, it's much easier to see there. Now I will caution you, one of the things that you need to be very careful about is that just because a pigment has a name doesn't mean that they're all created the same. So for example, not all ultramarine paints are made from the same chemical breakdown. This tends to be less of a problem when you're dealing with more expensive higher-end artist paints, but if you are buying uh, very inexpensive, I would say even like below student grade watercolors, for example, then I would not necessarily take the names to mean anything. You're going to have to test them out because there really isn't any rule about that. Like I could pretty much make any color and slap the name Cerulean on it, whether it matched or not. And it's not like there's color police out there that are going to come and haul me off for misnaming. It happens more often than you might think. If you cannot find the color online, or if you're worried that the name of your color doesn't actually match up with the pigment, there's a very simple solution. All you have to do is expose it to colored light. Really all you'll need is a couple of Sharpies, some clear scotch tape, and your cell phone camera light. You color on the smooth side of two pieces of scotch tape, one with red, 
one with blue. Put a clear piece of scotch tape on the back of both so you don't get any sticky residue on your cell phone. And then you can lay the stripe of color over the cell phone light and shine it on your paint. You want to make sure that it's flush so that no white light is escaping around the edges and it'll shift the color to tell you what else is in it. So a blue on a blue red or a purple red is going to turn that red more purple. On an orange red it's going to turn it brown or gray. I would recommend using the blue light for everything except for the blue pigments themselves because the human eye processes blue light better than red light. It's just easier to see. Very easy at-home solution to your problem. All right, so that is why yellow and blue don't always make green and why more often than not, when you mix color, it doesn't turn out the way that you want. I hope the one thing that you will take away from this, aside from more consistent color mixing, is the knowledge that you are not a failure in any way, shape, or form if you have previously been frustrated by mixing color, because this is way more common than you would think. I always joked with my students that they should not take me as an example because I am synesthetic, which means uh, I have the mixing of the senses, so I hear sounds for colors. So I had it a lot easier than most people when it came to color mixing because I could hear when the tones weren't right and I could modify accordingly. I'm one of those weird outliers, I guess. But for the majority of the population, this is a very frustrating prospect. I think even Picasso himself was frustrated by the lack of green. If you're curious or want to do further activities for color mixing, I have listed some on my blog as well as the examples that we talked about today just for further knowledge if you want to do them or if you have kids that are interested in art and color theory, definitely have them do the activities. If you have any questions about any of the things that I've talked about today, please feel free to reach out to me and let know. Which brings me to the last part of our podcast, a segment that I like to call Ask a Color Theorist, which is where I answer the questions that are brought to me by my listeners. Since the start of the pandemic and so many people being forced to homeschool their children, I have fielded a great many more questions about color theory online just from friends and people who know what I do. So for this first episode, I'm actually going to answer one of their questions, but in the future, I hope to be answering your questions. So today's Ask a Color Theorist question comes from my friend Wayward Glitter. I'm just going to use her online username and not her real name for sake of privacy. And she wants to know all about the invisible green used by Walt Disney in their theme parks. So what she's referring to here is a color of paint that the people at Disney call go away green. This is a color they use to paint buildings and other structures that they don't want the park goers to actually notice. Truthfully, Disney actually has two invisible colors. There is an invisible green and an invisible gray, and they are used depending upon the area. You're more likely to see invisible gray in areas like Epcot, where there's a great deal more um, building structures like steel as well as cement because the gray blends in. So how does this really work? Well, this is making use of a concept that we're all familiar with, which is camouflage, but I think what really startles people about the invisible colors is how very well they work. We all understand that camouflaging does work to an extent, but I think most of us have a different understanding of camouflaging, right? We would not imagine that an entire building could just be disappeared from our line of sight. And it's very disturbing when we realize that that has in fact happened. 
So how does this work? Well, Disney is actually making use of something that happens in our brains. It's an evolutionary thing, I believe. Our brains evolve to notice difference. That's really how we differentiate between things. You think about when you're a small child, it's one of the first games you learn to play. One of these things is not like the other. So when we see something that is the same, the brain normally dismisses it. But this whole idea of noticing difference actually leads to something that's most often referred to as subconscious blindness, which means that the brain sees and dismisses something and then is unaware of the fact that this has in fact happened and so therefore you don't see it. Now let me use an example that probably everyone has experienced, which is that you are looking for something. For example, the TV remote. This is one that befalls my husband quite regularly. I will hear him yelling for me. He cannot find the TV remote. He has looked everywhere. He has looked all around the sofa and on the table and you name it, right? And he can't find it. And I walk in and I take one look and it's right there on the side of the sofa. So why does that happen? How did he completely miss the TV remote? Well, he's missing the TV remote the same way that visitors to Disney's parks are missing buildings that have been painted with the invisible colors. If the brain sees information that isn't different, that it's already seen previously, it simply dismisses it and doesn't process it. It's really very fascinating to watch it happen. It's the same reason why you can read a paper that you've typed out on the computer or an email and then come back to it an hour and a half to two hours later and pick out five to 10 errors that you've made in it that you missed before because you're suffering from a form of subconscious blindness. The brain says, I've already looked at this. This isn't new information. I don't need to process this. Disney just takes advantage of that particular blind spot in our brains and uses it. And they're very smart about it. I mean, oftentimes in the area where the green is used, they'll use greenery as a sort of transition. So they'll put grasses or shrubs or something. So the brain sees green items and says, oh, that's greenery, right? And then right beyond them is maybe half of a building or a doorway that has been painted in visible green. And the brain just sees more green and says, ugh, I don't need to look at that. That's more shrubbery. Same with the invisible gray. It's used in areas where, like I said, there's a lot of buildings or cement. The brain just sort of registers it as part of the background. We don't see it as truly formed. So that is how the invisible colors work at the Walt Disney theme parks. I want to thank Wayward Glitter for her question. If you have a question that you would like to ask a color theorist, please feel free to reach out to me through my blog or via email, which is color theory, C-O-L-O-U-R, theory101 at gmail.com. You can also find me under the same handle on Twitter. I am happy to answer any questions you might have here on the podcast. I want to thank you guys for tuning in today to the first episode of Color Theory 101. Like I said, lots of examples and activities on the blog. And if you have any questions or suggestions of things that you would like to hear me talk about on future shows, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. Until next time, this has been Bianca, the academic synesthetic color theorist, reminding you that life is an ocean of color and it is wonderful to dive in. I will see you guys all on the next episode. Be well.